You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Heavenly Father, we come by your Spirit. We come in the name of your Son. We declare his glory. We declare his victory. And because he's glorious, victorious, Lord, we can say that you are our God, that we belong in your family, that you are not just a, a concept or an idea or a product of wishful thinking, someone that we hope exists, or that we, we think loves us. No, you are our God, that, that we are in a relationship with you, that we are singing to you, you are listening right now, and you are not merely listening with, with, with what's, to what's coming out of our mouths, but you are looking into our hearts, Lord God, and that, that you are our God, that we are your people. And so God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray now that as the people of God are going to hear the word of God, Lord, I pray, I pray God that you would help me to preach with faith, believing that you're working. I pray that everyone who can hear today would hear with faith, Lord, would hear and believe, Lord, that that you are our God, that you sent your son so that we could live in relationship with you now and on into eternity. So help us, we pray. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, our, our ushers can um, help you out with that. We don't have pew Bibles. We just have awesome ushers. And so um, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand at them or holler at them, and, uh, and they will be able to, to pass one into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, this is our uh, gift uh, to you. Um, December began uh, this week, and so that means that it becomes very clear as we uh, look around different people's houses, that there's really, there's, there's two different kinds of people in the world. Really, fundamentally, the human race is divided into two categories. There's two kinds of people. One kind of people puts real Christmas trees in their house. The other kind uses artificial tree. Now, I don't want to create a church split. I don't want to have you raise your hand. I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, okay? So we're not going to duke that out right now, but although those two people are so vastly different from one another, there's something that they have in common. Whether you have a real tree or whether you have an artificial tree, the thing you have in common is that neither of you have a living tree. The tree in your house is not alive. You can can put all kinds of decorations on it, you can light it up, but that tree is not alive. That lovely pine scent, that's that's the smell of death. It may look green on the outside, water may maintain it for a little while, but eventually it's going to start to shrivel. Eventually the needles are are going to shed and you're going to realize that you have a dead tree in your house. That's the one thing we all have in common. You see, things can look alive, but they're not really alive. You know, the same is true for a church. A church can seem to be alive. A church can have all kinds of lights and decorations on it, and it seems very vibrant, it seems very, it seems very healthy, but it's actually dead 
and dying. Churches start dying when churches stop praying. Prayer is what keeps a church alive. And in the, in the same way that, that there are certain things that, that a tree needs in order to stay alive, there are certain things that, that a church needs, things that we need to pray for. And in, in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see Paul praying for a church that is growing. How does a church grow? It grows by prayer. The book of Acts is the story of the church growing from something so small into something so massive. How did the, how did the church grow in the book of Acts? I define the book of Acts this way. The book of Acts is one giant prayer meeting interrupted by several miracles and sermons. Every time you turn around in that early church, people are praying. And the, the Thessalonians, they show up in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there now. But that's where, when Paul first visited there, where people first heard the gospel preached over three uh, Saturdays in a synagogue before a riot uh, broke out and Saul had to uh, leave town. But Saul wrote them a number of letters. And this was a church that was a growing church. I'll show you what I mean. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The church at Thessalonica was a growing church, not growing numerically, that's a sign of some sort of health, but they were growing in their faith. They were growing in their love for one another, and that's what we need to be praying for our church. We need to be praying that we would be growing in our faith and growing in our love for one another. And in the same way that a tree needs certain things in order to grow. I mean, a tree's not going to grow. I mean, there's a certain sequence. There's certain necessities. These are the priorities for growth with a tree. Seed, sun, soil, water. You don't have those things. You don't have a growing tree. Those are four priorities that are a must in order for a tree to grow. A tree that doesn't have those things is a dead tree or a dying tree. And what we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 now, we're going to see four priorities for prayer. A, prayer. a church that is not praying is a church that is dying. And Paul is going to, he's going to give the church at Thessalonica a window into, here's the way that I am praying for you. And what we're going to do is we're going to study this prayer in its original context, what Paul was saying to the church at Thessalonica. And then tonight at 7 o'clock at our ministry center, we're going to have a prayer gathering, a house of prayer meeting where we are going to get together and we're going to pray these priorities together because a church that is not praying is a church that is dying. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, To this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. From this summary of how Paul prays for the church of Thessalonica, we're going to see four priorities for prayer. Jot, jot this first one down. We must prioritize praying about who we are. 
praying about who we are and our calling. Who we are and our calling. Verse 11, he says, to this end, we always pray for you. He's, he's, he's linking what his prayer requests or his, 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 his summary of the way that he's praying for this church back to what he had said in the previous verses. He had described to them that the church of Thessalonica had all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems with understanding the end times. And so Paul had just summarized in verses 5 through 10 Christ's return, what it's going to mean for unbelievers, what it's going to mean for believers, the the second coming, it's the second advent. At Christmas, we celebrate the first advent, the first coming of Christ, that he came, you know, almost unnoticed and and, and humble, uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in in a cattle shed in, in, in Bethlehem. That's the first coming, but the second coming, I mean, Christ, he's, he's going to appear. It, he's not going to be hidden and obscure. It's not, he's not going to go unnoticed. No, it's like as lightning flashes across the sky, he's going to be on a, a white horse. He's not going to be a, a meek and mild baby. He's going to be a conquering warrior. So Paul says, to that end, in light of that, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And I'm praying, he says, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that our God would make you worthy of his calling. And we need, we need, to, we need to be careful here as we understand th- this idea of worthy. You see, all other religions talk about striving to be worthy, aspire for worthiness, and then God will call you. But Christianity doesn't say aspire for worthiness so that God will call you, no. Christianity says not aspire for worthiness. It says acknowledge your wretchedness. And it, it, the, the Christian life begins, doesn't it, when we admit that we're a sinner. So we need to be clear here what Paul is saying. He's not saying, he's not, he, when he's talking about the calling of God, he's not talking about something that they're hoping for in the future when he says that God may make you worthy of his calling. You see, because people have already been called. Let let me kind of show you a little bit of my homework this week to sort of help you understand how this all fits together. The the, the Christian life, as it's described in the New Testament, can really be divided into three categories. The the first moment in time is justification. And it, it in fact, is a moment in time. In my little chart here, it's a dot, okay? It, It happens. It's once for all. This is the moment of a person's conversion, where God looks at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He looks at his substitutionary atonement for us, and he declares us innocent. He declares us righteous. We are justified. Now, justification is not a process. It's not something that is supposed to happen multiple times in a person's life. It's an event. And so if you're here today, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are justified. It's something past tense. It's a dot. It happened. But then from the point of justification, then God brings us on a journey known as sanctification. It's a process of living out what it means to be a Christian, becoming more like Christ. And and that's where we grow, and that's why we're here today, and that's why we gather in small groups and men groups, is so that we can grow as a disciple. That's why we read our Bibles and why we pray, because we're in this process of sanctification. And then at the end is another dot, another moment in time glorification, that when Christ returns or when we die to go with him, we will, we will be with him forever in eternity. And these are the three, the three stages of the Christian life. Justification deals with the penalty of sin. 
And then sanctification is wrestling with the power of sin. But then glorification, there, there won't even be the presence of sin anymore. So when Paul here is talking about being made worthy of the calling, when he's talking about God make you, making you worthy, but when he's talking about the calling, he's actually pointing backwards to justification. Because the people at Thessalonica, they have already been called. And so much of the Christian life is actually living like who you truly are. Living out your true identity. That the way that you think and the way that you speak and the way that you act actually lines up with who you truly are. With who God has called you to be. You see, loved ones, we do and we must in order to be saved. We must. It's not about aspiring to be worthy. It's about acknowledging that we're, that we're wretched. Loved ones, that's where the Christian life starts but the Christian life even though it starts there it doesn't stay there God loves you too much to allow you to stay in the way that you were before you got saved he wants to grow you and change you and transform you to make you worthy of the calling that he has called you to so what is this calling Romans 1 6 says that we've been called to belong to God Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.13 says that we were called to freedom. When we came to Christ, we were enslaved to sin. And sometimes we bring that slavery into our Christian life. But we're called to freedom, to be free of the sin that so easily entangles us. We are called children of God. That's our identity. That's our calling. It doesn't matter what other people think about us. We're called to be children of God. 1 Peter 1.15 says that God is holy and that he has called us to be holy as he is holy. 1 Peter 2.9 says he called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. Why should we be hiding in the dark? Walk in the light. And then 1 Peter 5.10 says that he's called us to an eternal glory. What? Well, these are some incredible things that we have been called to and God wants us to live this way. This is who we truly are. Paul's main priority for praying, the first one for them, was that they would understand who they were. That their life would line up with who God, with who God has made them to be, with their identity. But it is... Can we be sure that this is going to happen? Can we be sure? Sometimes I feel like I'm always failing and struggling. And I know God called me, but when I, when I think about where I am in my Christian life, I thought I'd be so much further. And when I look at other people, I think I, I, I'm, I'm just not a good enough Christian. But listen, just turn, if you're in 2 Thessalonians, just turn to the, the end of 1 Thessalonians. It might be one page over in your Bible. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. We talked about that word. That's the word on the chart. That's the word in between. That's where we're all living right now. That process of sanctification. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's glorification. That's the end. Then notice this. He who calls you, he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. He will do it. 
He has, God, God fulfills his promises. He's promised to begin a good work in you. He will carry it to completion. He has called you to a very high calling, to be his son, to be his daughter, to represent him and his rule and his reign here on earth. And he has called you to that, and he is faithful to help you fulfill that calling. This is who we are. This is our identity. We don't need to stake our identity on our appearance or our performance, our intelligence or our popularity. Our identity is who we are in Christ. And what we're doing right now, even though sometimes we fail, we are having our lives line up with that calling to which we have been called. It's who we are. Here's the second priority for prayer. It's what we do. It's what we do. I'm back in the middle of verse 11 right now. It says, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every work of faith by his power. He, he prays that we would have these works of faith. But he prays that they would come from a fulfillment of something that comes before that. A resolve for good. Do you understand that God has put inside of you a resolve to do good, to do what is right. You see, too often, we just focus on the wretched part of us in the Christian life. Yes, it is true that there is something still inside of us. There is evil desires and passions that, that, that still want to get control and still, and still lead us in, in, down the path of temptation. That is true. But loved ones, the gospel gives the Christian a new heart. He has removed the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He has put his spirit inside of you. And God has changed your desires, the, the very core of who you are at your heart. There is a resolve to do what is good. And we need to understand that it flows out of understanding who we are and our calling. And it might sound humble to say I'm utterly sinful and I'm wicked and I never have a good thought or a good desire. That's simply not true. God has put inside of us a good resolve to want to love people, to want to speak the truth, to want to not protect ourselves but selflessly love other people. He has put that inside of each of us. And Paul is praying that we would start to act on those things and that they would be produced in a work of faith. Now some of us are sort of stumbling over the fact that work and faith are, are sort of used together to describe the same kind of thing. I mean, isn't it true that theologically speaking that work and faith are, are held in juxtaposition from one another? Aren't they kind of opposites uh, from one another? Doesn't the Bible say that we're saved by faith and not by works? Well, listen... That is true, but the issue is not that they're opposite from one another. They just need to be positioned in the proper sequence, that one must become, one must be before the other. Let me show you what I mean from a couple of verses. Ephesians, oh, sorry, yeah, we'll, no, we'll, we'll stick with Ephesians 2. We'll stick with Ephesians 2. Sorry, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a train wreck. I feel sorry for everyone who's working with me on my slides. But Okay, so by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So that, that's, that, that's what we believe, right? Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That, that's just clear. We're saved by faith, not by works, but then keep reading. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So 
Faith comes first, but an evidence of faith, a sign that faith is actually working in us, is that we have this resolve for good and that we end up doing good works. Let me show you another verse from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's what's happening right here. Listen, I don't fit into the apostle category right now, but I fit into the shepherd and teacher category. And my job right now is to give you the word of God to equip you. I'm not doing the work of ministry right now. I'm equipping you to do it. I'm trying to show you what your identity is and what your calling is and what you're supposed to be doing so that you can go and do the work of Ministry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So we work because he's working in us. And look how he's working in us. Both to will and to work. The resolve for good and the works that come from that. He has changed our very will. He has put good desires inside of each and every one of us. And Paul is praying that we would act on those desires to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so let's, let's plot this on the, on the graph then. So we've, we've looked at how we have been, he, we're praying to be made worthy of his calling. And what does it mean? How will we know if, if, if we are growing, if, if, we, if God is making us worthy? He is taking those resolve for good and causing them to be revealed in works of faith. And so we talk a lot about works at a Harvest Bible Chapel, not in the sense of you need to do works in order to be saved. We talk about works of the fact that you need to do works because you are saved. We, we expect every, every a person who calls Harvest Bible Chapel their home to, to engage in three things that begin with the letter W. Worship, walk, and work. Worship simply that, that you have a relationship with God. And that you, reckon you stop worshiping yourself or worshiping false idols and truly worship him. That you believe the gospel. And then, and then you walk with him, walking in the context of community, walking in a personal relationship with him. But then thirdly, to work. Because the Bible tells us so many times in the New Testament that not that, not that works replace faith or that work is contrasted with faith, but that work flows from faith. And so we work by faith. So what, what, what does work of faith actually look like practically in our lives? You know, maybe you're, maybe you're involved in setting up chairs. Maybe you're involved in doing some sort of a prison ministry outside the walls of, uh, of our church. Or maybe you're serving in, in kids' ministry or, uh, or a leader in, in young adults or, or our women's ministry. What, what does this actually look like? Well, first off, it's, it's a work of faith that when we work, we have to be believing some things. First and foremost, we have to believe that God is going to give us the strength to do it. I don't know about you, but so often I feel like in my life, what's expected of me is somewhere up here. And what I feel like I can do is somewhere down here. And, and when, whenever I show up to serve the Lord, and today's no different, that what I feel like I need to do and what I feel like I can bring to the table, it, there, there's, a, there's a gap between those two things. And what a work of faith is, is trusting that God will fill that gap. Trusting that he will give the strength to take my feeble, broken, human effort and to strengthen it and breathe on it by his spirit to accomplish what needs to be done. 
Furthermore, not only does he fill that gap, is he takes what we do. When we work, we must work in such a way to believe that not only will he, not only will he fill the gap, but that he will multiply what we do. I just can't get out of my mind this, 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 this attack that Jonathan and his armor bearer engaged in against the Philistines. There was 20 of them up on this hill and they ran uphill. There was a huge gap, right? There's, there's, 20, there's two of us, there's 20 of them. And so they had to trust God to fill that gap, didn't they? But then, in the big picture of things, even though it was such a huge risk, it would have been so hard for Jonathan and his armor bearer to do that, to kill 20 Philistines when the, the army of the Philistines was like the sand on the seashore, when there are thousands and thousands of them, you've got to, Jonathan's got to be wondering, well, what is the point? Why would I risk everything? Why would I work so hard if it's, if it's, if it's only going to be a drop in the bucket? But when we do a work of faith, we've got to believe that when we do what God has called us to do and allow him to give us the strength to do it, that he's going to multiply it. And that's the beauty of the story with, with Jonathan and his armor bearer. They engage in this battle. God sends an earthquake, sends confusion among the Philistines. They all turn on one another. And this massive army is defeated. That's what a work of faith is. And so we think, I mean, God's called us to a big mission, hasn't he? To make disciples of all nations. And you think, how does setting up a chair or, or wiping a toddler's nose in, in Harvest Kids, how is that actually fitting in with, with the, the mission so big? What's the point of even doing these things? Well, we're, we're doing works of faith. We are trusting that God will multiply our efforts. When, as Pastor Chris was sharing about how we need to be inviting people to come to church or taking them out for coffee and sharing our testimony, we think, well, there's so many people on the planet Earth. What difference does it make? Listen, God will multiply it. He will meet us in that moment. If you have a resolve for good, act on it and then do a work of faith, trusting that he will give you everything that you need and will indeed multiply it. So, who we are it's our calling. What we do, it's our work. Here's the third priority for prayer. Why it matters, God's glory. Why it matters, God's glory. I'm in verse uh, 12 now. He begins by saying, so that. I, so, I just want to stop there for a minute. So often in the New Testament, the most important words are the small ones. That word, so that, is explaining this is the reason why now. He's saying, I, I want you to live a life that's worthy of your calling. I want you to have those resolves for good and the work of faith so that. This is the reason. This is why. I, this is the bottom line. This is what I'm going for. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And so let that, let's, let's plot this on the graph. The whole point of making us worthy of our calling, the resolve for good, the work of faith, is so that Jesus would be glorified in you. That while we're being sanctified, that Jesus would get the glory in our lives. But then he says something surprising, and you in him. That we would be glorified? What, what, what is he getting at there? Well, he's talking about that ultimate moment in the future, our glorification. Let's get that uh, up on the screen, that, 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 that he would be, glor sorry, that we would be glorified in him. That's what we're looking forward to in the future. The bottom line, the ultimate aim is the glory of God. That's what we're all 
about. Again, our mission statement, before we even get at the idea of making disciples, the reason why we're here is to bring glory to God. And before we start to talk about loving our neighbor or loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we do that because our ultimate aim is to glorify God. That is the point of, of church. Our church exists for the glory of God. It's the reason why we serve. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, talking about works of faith. It says, as he said to receive a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The, 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 the goal behind everything that happens needs to be not that we would be glorified or the name of Harvest Bible Chapel would be glorified, but that Jesus would be glorified. The verse that our church was founded on, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is, what, this is the whole point. The whole point is the glory of God. The, the, the glory of God is God's manifest presence. That when we come together, the, the presence of God, the unquestionable sense in which God is among us. That is what we are going after. Sunday after Sunday, small group after small group, gathering after gathering, that we would sense that when two or three are gathered, that Christ is there among us, that his glory would be with us. So hopefully you're picking up what I'm putting down. Hopefully you're saying, okay, I get it. Who we are, our calling, I've got, I've got, to, I, I've got to trust God that he's going to work in me to live up to that. And then what we do, I've got to start to take steps of faith and to, and to, and to, to work in order to, to serve him. And then the whole point is, is the glory of God. But what holds it all uh, together? In verse 12 it says, according to, again, it seems like an insignificant word. But that, that phrase, according to, it, it's wrapping up this whole idea. This, he, he's going to lay something down now that's going to summarize what makes all of this possible. He says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who we are, our calling, what we do, our work, why it matters, God's glory. And then lastly, how it's done, God's grace. How it's done, God's grace. And so to revisit this chart just one more time, we have the whole thing and laying underneath it is this idea that it's according to grace. His calling was according to grace. Making us worthy is according to grace. The resolve to good and the work of faith is according to grace. His name being glorified and us being glorified in him is all according to grace. That's because we are justified by grace, sanctified by grace, and will be glorified by grace. It's all grace. Grace, grace, grace. Amazing grace. That is how all of this happens. What, what's a definition uh, of, uh, of grace? I love William Hendrickson. He breaks it down really simply. Grace is God's active favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. We are so unworthy, and yet God, we are, 
We are so unworthy, and yet God has chosen, rather than to punish us, to give us his greatest gift, to give us his son. And that's what we were called to. And in the process of sanctification, he has given us his son. In the process of glorification, he has given us his son. His son is his greatest gift. At the moment when someone gets saved, they turn their eyes on Jesus and they see the wretchedness of their own sin and they see the glorious sacrifice that Christ made and so their eyes are on Jesus. That's God giving the greatest gift. That's what what allows someone to be saved is, is, is at that moment of justification is seeing Jesus, receiving the gift of Jesus. And sanctification, so much of sanctification, just keeping our eyes off of Jesus, not on our eyes on Jesus, not on other people or not on our circumstances or not even on our failings, but getting our eyes on Jesus. And then what are we going to do when we're ultimately glorified one day in the future? We are we're going to have our eyes on Jesus, aren't we? We're going to be singing with the multitude saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Salvation belongs to our God. Jesus is the answer at justification. He's the answer at sanctification. He's going to be the answer at glorification. He is the greatest gift. And we are the ones, all we deserve is punishment. And so it's it's the grace of God as we find ourselves now in the sanctification stage. We, We need to keep our eyes on the grace of God. So often we just think about God was gracious to me when I first got saved, when he forgave me, When I placed my faith in him, I received God's grace. And then we think that we sort of leave God's grace behind and then go off and live the Christian life on our own, trying to show God how grateful we are for his grace. No, the whole whole Christian life is receiving. Receiving the grace of God at conversion justification. Receiving the grace of God in the process of sanctification. And then, yeah, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we, than when we first, but then meditating, receiving on the greatness of God's amazing grace to us. Just a couple of other verses to show you what I mean. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. And then, then there's two particles here that are going to describe what, what did the grace of God do? When the grace of God appeared in, in, in Christ, What did the grace of God do? It said, bringing salvation for all people. That's the part that we're normally familiar with. But the verse goes on with another participle. Training us. The grace of God is is our personal trainer. Training us. Taking us to the, as Pastor Robbie Simon says, taking us to the gym of godliness. And training us to to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age until that moment of glorification. It's the grace of God that is training us. It's It's meditating on the fact that God has given us his son. That is the key to growing in the sanctification process. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, my identity, who I am, that's because of the grace of God. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And so those works of faith are all coming from the grace of God inside Paul's life. So, loved ones, we are continually in need of receiving 
grace. Some of you are, are here today and you think that you've fallen too far. That, that God was gracious to you in saving you, but now in light of the fact you have lived so unworthy of the calling to which he's called you, that you think God has just kind of given up on you, that, that he doesn't want to be gracious to you anymore. You need to understand that, that God's grace is available to you today. Repent of your sin. Return to the Lord. You have not gone too far. It is not too late. Don't ever think that. But listen, don't, don't ever think this, which is sometimes so often dangerous. Thinking that, yeah, I was pretty messed up before I became a Christian. And God was gracious to me when I was converted. But now that I've been living the Christian life, you know, I've learned some principles. I've sort of made some changes. I've got some healthy habits and routines and disciplines in my life. I don't really need God's grace anymore. That is such a dangerous place to be. Jerry Bridges sums it up so beautifully. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond your need of God's grace. So loved ones, that's why it's, it's just really important as we get ready for this prayer meeting tonight that we share the Lord's Supper together. You know, Jesus sitting around with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed. He told them, take this bread, take this cup. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, do this regularly. Remind yourself of, do this in remembrance of me. Remember how badly you need grace. In the bad times, remember how badly you need grace. And in the good times, Remember how badly you need grace. The best way to keep a church from dying is to keep its eyes on the Savior who died and who rose again. And that's what we ultimately need to pray for us as a church, that our eyes would always be on Christ, that we would always recognize our need for his grace. So let's bow our heads together now as we prepare to receive uh, these symbols. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who showered grace on everyone he ever spoke to, even those who were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Your son, who is this, the, the greatest example of grace, of showing complete kindness to those who only deserve punishment. And so, God, we thank you for your grace. And we want to posture ourselves in such a way so as to continually receive your grace on good days and on bad days. And so, God, I pray right now as, as we... Share in communion, Lord, that you truly would commune with us. That by your grace, that your presence, Lord, would be evident in, in, in every heart here that knows you and loves you. Search us, O oh Lord, we pray. Know our hearts. God, lead us in repentance of those things that we need to confess. And God, give us courage and confidence to come before your throne, which is a throne of grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. God, we pray for reverence. We pray for remembrance 
in this moment. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.